Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the third, no, it's the 18th of October. Um, my dog has been barking for like 20 minutes, I don't know why, and I can't go upstairs to stop it. And so if there's a dog barking in the background, I apologize. <laughs> I can't hear it's, it. Yeah, I know. That's good. I have no idea what he's barking at, but sometimes he gets in these loops, you know? Yeah. And then he just won't stop. There's nothing you can do. No. He's like, it's because he's, we figured Isn't out recently. Sick? No, he's just a okay. jerk, you know? <laughs> he, he's part Shiba Inu, we realized recently. After having him for like nine years, and Those I guess they're a very, nasty. I guess they're a very barky type of dog, you know. We thought he was just a cute little Chihuahua, but he's like a Chihuahua Shiba mix, mm -hmm. which is, in, I think that that, you know, not to get all, uh, you know, deterministic about genetics, but I think that those are, <laughs> I think, I think those are very barky dogs. Doggy so, genics. <laughs> yeah, dog, <laughs> dog, dog genics. Um, genics. I think they're Japanese. Yeah. The Shiba Inu. Are those Japanese? Shiba? The Shiba They're Inus Japanese are really dog. nasty little dogs. They're very mean. Uh-oh. So you have a Japanese is, dog. Is They're always, like, terrible. biting and... Anyway. My dog is, like, will just start... What The thing he does is he runs up and jumps. If I'm lying in bed, he runs up and jumps, and then immediately it just starts humping my arm. It's weird. Like, and then I'm just like, you gotta stop, you know? <laughs> And then he just like keeps coming, and it's been that way not for like, yeah, like you'll push him away, and then he'll just start growling, and then he humps then just, your arm <laughs> on a daily basis. It's like an alpha thing, you know. He's like, he's like, I'm the alpha, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm just lying here watching a football game. Can you leave me alone? You know, it's like, fine, you're the alpha, you win, you know, but it doesn't work. <laughs> my appeasement campaign has not worked it's like i'll just be the beta it's okay but please this is disgusting you gotta stay anyway it hasn't worked um all right uh time to say goodbye we are a podcast we do this every single week um how are you two doing i'm here with andy and tammy my co-hosts yeah. i feel like we have to we have new listeners now yeah i was like what are we doing the intro <laughs> yeah <laughs> we have a lot of new listeners and it's not you know it's because the uh, we were in some email that the New York Times sent out about ways to understand Squid Game. Right. And I yeah. was like, all right, well, sure. You know, that's weird. You know, I don't even remember what we said about Squid What did we say about Squid Game? Um, it was right. Was it? Oh, yeah. Jay, you saw the twist. And yeah. then we debated whether it's anti-capitalist. What a great conversation. Yeah. And we One hated the ending. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great episode. Great conversation. One person being like, actually, I saw that coming from a mile away, you know? Yeah. <laughs> really inviting to newcomers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a great long conversation. No, I knew it. Tammy, why didn't you figure it out? Why are you so, why are you oh so dumb? Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we have a lot of things to talk about this week. Um, I think that's kind of true. I would put yeah. this at a seven in terms of things that we have to talk about. content. Yeah. Anyway, I hope you're both doing well. <laughs> We're good. Andy's in a really yeah. busy time, right? With school and stuff. Um, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff just juggling. FYI, I might have to leave early. <clears throat> early, we'll see. My daughter gets out of school in 45 What time does your daughter get out of school? 520, 530 this time. Okay, so we're going to breeze through this. No, I mean, we can't. Whatever. I could, you guys could keep talking after Completely nonsense. All right. Well, we have a childcare topic, so it's good. Yeah, it's true. 
We do? Oh, yeah, we do. Okay. Well, Number one. First thing we're going to talk about, right? Oh, I have a book that's out. Please buy it. It's called The Loneliest Americans. And um, it's a very hot topic in Asian America. I just I just powered through it last night and this morning. Oh, yeah. Tell me what you thought, Andy. Did you like it? It It's good. I thought we're going to talk more about it next scale one to ten. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> 11? No, don't go. 11, thank you. Thank you. You heard it here first. <laughs> Is that going to be like the next blurb? 11 we don't 10. have to talk about it. Yeah. Um, we should talk suppose, about it. You know, maybe we have a we'll book club this week, it. though. We'll talk about it next week. And we are going to do a Discord book club. So if you are listening, yeah. if you're one of the new listeners, if you sign up for our Discord, which you can do through goodbye.substack.com for $5 a month, you will get access to our Discord. We're on Thursday night. We will be having a long... Uh, I'll, I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do? I haven't done any readings because all this stuff was planned during the Delta surge. Also, it might be that like nobody actually wanted... You know, I don't know. It, like That's what they tell me, but it could also just be... I see other writers doing readings and I'm like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could just be, oh, you know, this Delta thing. You know, it's not yeah. because of your <laughs> terrible personality and the fact that no one will want to buy this book. It's just Delta. Um, <laughs> we have a, <laughs> um, yeah, we'll talk about it on Thursday. Outside of that, I have I have very little to say, I think. Well, so let's, yeah, go we ahead. have, so the Discord, if you don't know, it's a chat room. It's an online chat room. Well, and you, you can come in through Substack or we have a Patreon too. Right. And, and both ways you'll get a link. Both ways you get a link and we really um, appreciate your support. And we think Andy and I are hosting this book club and we think we are better interviewers than most of the people who have interviewed Jay so far. And oh, yeah. we have intimate knowledge of Jay so we can go in direct new directions. So we're very excited that's, about this. That's true. We have 102 episodes of getting to know each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah I did feel like reading your book uh, in like, you know, three or four hours. I know a lot more about you than 200 hours of podcasting with you. <laughs> it is oh, very right, personal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would you, yeah. one question I had, I know we don't need to do the whole book club right now, is do you guys remember when Suki Kim had that whole thing about whether or not her book mm-hmm. was a memoir? I was oh, thinking yeah. about that this week, reading your book, Jay. Like, is this a memoir? And was there a publishing conversation around the categorization of this book? I don't know how it's uh, categorized. Um, yeah. You know, I would like to just be like, do not categorize my words. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're is, beyond categories? Yeah, yeah, what is a memoir but a social construct, you know? My <laughs> See, words will that, that be... That was kind of my response to the Suki my, controversy. Right, my words will be, my words will go on forever. Um, first topic, most Asian topic ever, MSG. <laughs> there was a moment actually in the Discord where MSG stood for Matthew Shen Goodman because we were right. talking about his N plus one article so much. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. But now we're talking about the real MSG. Actually, yeah. somebody in our Discord messaged me last night and she was like something about MSG. And then I was like, uh what is as like what do you mean who's ms and she was like oh matthew shank goodman who is oh, really yeah <laughs> and then i was, was like so oh bad. i thought you were talking about like madison square garden or <laughs> like, yeah, i that's have no that. idea what that There's is so many msgs uh, okay anyway and we're talking about the food stuff you know right. why are we talking about it what's a what's the peg here like why why are we talking about oh. msg this came out last month was it last yeah. month lrb there was an article by daniel sower 
mm-hmm. kind of I don't know what was the like this wasn't a book review so I don't know if LRB yeah. like where does the convention like why did they write why did oh, this, this piece... was this was like in a in the kind of front of the book shortish section just for fun and I thought yeah. it would be a good topic for us because it's a little it's a short piece and like a very concrete and discreet history of MSG and yeah. how it's played out and I feel like MSG is you know it's obviously sort of like theme or preoccupation in like Asian American food discourse yeah. um well I feel like yeah. you know in the few years ago there's David Chang's documentary or his series on yeah. Netflix where there's a scene where he brings in I think he does, he has like a, a group of people to get them to try out different foods and he asked them like if I don't know I forget the context he has but an he MSG like, focus group right he like disproves yes. that MSG is bad for you you know yeah. this so-called Chinese restaurant syndrome mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the takeaway is like the mythology we were told that MSG is bad for you was a racist myth by white I don't know like com- commentators or the medical establishment in the United States and I do think that is has kind of become common sense and you see it a lot mm-hmm. in sort of like Asian American right, conversations right I think that's true too I don't do you do you see it? Do you see it, Tammy? Do you see like are there? My mom doesn't like. My mom is afraid of MSG. <laughs> well, that's a, that, that was my question, which is my parents too. We don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. most Me Asians. Like, don't but know. also, right. we eat namyeon like all the time, so obviously yeah. we love MSG. Well, yeah. But the, well, but is it nat- is it naturally occurring or is it the chemical stuff? No, no it's like stuff. you like it's it comes delicious. in like a it comes in a bag with like a raw piece of beef on the a photo of a raw <laughs> piece of beef on the front. Do you get that yeah. one, Tammy? Yeah. Uh, I forget what the brand name is, and then you just scoop it out. <laughs> scoop out MSG and just like toss it in there. Yeah, you just scoop it out. You put it oh, in like God. I don't know, like what Yukajang yeah. or something like that, right? Like if, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. if you're making one of these things and you just scoop it right in there. Um, yeah, I don't use it, but uh, that's because you know I prefer to use more natural. Uh, you know, time honored traditions. That that at all, but actually, um, you know, I don't. Uh, yeah, my mom's afraid of it. That's the yeah, only yeah. person I know who doesn't like MSG. I feel like Americans are kind of over it at this point, right? Well, I mean, that was my question to you guys because I, I don't like. I, I try not to eat it, even really. Though, I guess yeah. Why? Internal internal racism. Yeah, internalized Why racism. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I was I was buying. I was told, I told you this earlier. I was buying dumplings the other day. And I just like looked at the ingredients for every single one. I was like, which one has the least amount of MSG? I don't know. It's uh, like everyone I know in Taiwan believes MSG is bad for you. Like you go to a restaurant and you go like, you right. have to like tell them no MSG in our food. And like, okay, yeah, like, you know. Wow. So that that kind of led me to think about in the context of the racism discussion of like, well, what happens when like everyone from the from the persecuted yeah. victimized race actually believes in this? Like, is it racism or is it just? Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're um, right. All right. So um, this this article does a history of MSG, which I think that we should go through very quickly. Um, it's uh, you know this guy and and at the turn of the 19th century, 18th. Cent- How do you do this thing in 1899? 20s. Yeah, 19th century. Turn of the 20th century. Turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Turn of the 20th century. This guy named uh, Kikunai Ikeda, right? Um, he is a he is at Tokyo Imperial university he's traveling around and he notices this like taste he can't he can't quite get out of his head right and he does some experiments i believe with kelp right and he sort of locates what this what this taste is and he combines it i believe you know i think he's a chemist he he combines it with like salt and then in the end you know the thing that he's created is msg and that this you know this becomes the taste sensation of of uh 
of Japan, right? And, and then by extension, Asia, then it becomes mass, mass produced in a way, right? And then um, it finds its way into almost everything at that time. It's like, it's like little, it's like little crystals. And what's the thing that like sort of does a flavor bomb? I think it's called a glutamic, glut, glutamic acid or something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Glutamic um, acid. Glutamic acid. And that, uh, that all that stuff is like not particularly interesting, but the part that is interesting is sort of how it becomes a problem. So like, uh, Andy, Andy Lou, how does this become a problem? So, uh, the big, uh, uh, kind of reminded me of the story of how like anti-vaccination begins with this, like yeah. article in 1998 about how the vaccines cause autism. autism. Right. So way. similarly, there was a letter, I guess in the 1966 or 67, by someone, um, and this is like contested. Uh, the author self-identified as Ho Man Kwok, which could be a Cantonese name. Like, and uh, the yeah. person talks about how they have these this issue, this like these physical uh, medical problems. And as a doctor or as someone part of some research institute, he determines that it's monosodium glutamate from Chinese restaurants and coins the phrase Chinese restaurant syndrome. Right and. <laughs> It totally is like possible the to New me. England Journal of Medicine. Like yeah. it's yeah. not some random journal. <laughs> right. What are the what are the what are the symptoms of Chinese restaurant syndrome? It's like it's um, like a headache, right? He says yeah. numbness in the back of the neck, gradually yeah. radiating to both arms and the back. Right. General weakness and palpitation. So, I knew someone in Taiwan, a, a Taiwanese American, who had like mind numbing, like like paralyzing headaches and all these bad things happened to him and a doctor in Taiwan told him it's MSG and it cut out MSG and all of his problems were solved really this is totally anecdotal and non-scientific but like that led me to believe oh this is real did the doctor uh, give him like an allergy test or was it just I think I, I don't know I don't remember but he was like and so every time we went out to eat he would go he would tell the server like no MSG and then, I'm serious <laughs> no MSG he would like say it like three or four times uh -huh. um, and uh and, and I think I think it was like does was that like, work it was like we couldn't you. we couldn't go to like the like the like divey diner type right. places because yeah. like those are gonna be full of MSG. We have to go to good places or organic places only. Um, so there was part of my brain that was like, I don't know, I was like 22 when I knew this guy, and just, ever since then I've kind of like, it's true, it's real, isn't it? I don't know. That's um, so. But it sounds exactly like Chinese restaurant syndrome. Yeah, that is Chinese restaurant. Syndrome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what my mom says happens to her too. Um, yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. But also there was one of the guys who wrote into the LRB after this was published said that his wife got it from a delicious wheel of blue cheese. That there was naturally occurring MSG in that and then he tested positive for that as the allergy. Isn't that so interesting? And oh, weird? That's weird. Yeah. Doritos have MSG in there too. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, that was the David Chang segment, giving him Doritos. Oh yeah, that's that right. was about Doritos. Wait, well he was like, Here's some thing? Western foods and oh, okay. and then that's like right. what if I told you these all have MSG in them? Yeah. Uh, I actually had forgotten until David, uh, until Jay mentioned that. So the other part of the story is that um, the, This American Life did a story. So the mythology in this story is that 30, 40 years later, a white doctor from Philadelphia named Howard Steele in his 90s says, actually, that letter from Ho Man Kwok was a total spoof. It was a hoax that I played, mm -hmm. and I made up a racist fake Chinese name. Ho Man Kwok was human croc. And I all along, I just like I just like wrote hold this my letter. Crack. Yeah. Hold my like human crock. Oh, hold my like crack. human human shit. And um, oh. 
Yeah, and so he claimed like it was <laughs> that, a big. That one's, that one's a bit obscure. It's not like you know the other ones like uh, "Holy fuck" or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like a Simpsons joke. It's Holy like fuck. a little next level. Yeah, that one's a little next oh, level. Oh right, yeah. I get why. It's and then hug and kiss. Know, yeah, all the ones that I shouldn't say, but you know, uh, <laughs> uh, I've, I've made a pledge to stop. Uh, I I told I told people in the discord that not i'm not doing any more racist accents <laughs> racist asian accents anymore in the show um okay so yes this comes out but, and they say it's a but is that is that ever confirmed like it was it a, was it a hoax? so so it turns out that this american life did a story this year or last year where the reporter discovered there actually was a home on clock his but he had passed away in 2014 but his family confirmed that they believe he wrote the letter and all that stuff, and then the guy Howard Steele, who had passed, or who had um, claimed it was a hoax, he had also just passed away. Um, so this is all. He was already like ninety six when he confessed to it. Right, but his daughter, <laughs> his daughter was like, when the daughter finds out on This American Life, she's like, oh, that's dad. You know, that's that's the, that's the prankster dad is. You know, like to me, right. it seemed a little like maybe you should feel a little bit more embarrassed that your dad did that. Yeah, <laughs> and, seriously. And claimed to be a Chinese doctor. Yeah. So oh, I didn't you know. listen to the This American Life. After you listen to the This American Life, which side are you on? I think the I think everyone concludes on that episode that it's probably a real like there. It really there was, was Homan Kwok. It really was Homan Kwok. And um, okay. So what's this dude doing? This is like the Yeti thing, you know. Like, what's the Yeti thing? Like, well, like you know, like there's the Yeti video, the, the famous uh, Bigfoot video, mm-hmm. taken yeah. in California, right? Yeah, and then. Um, Basically, the guy has come out and been like, "Yeah, I put on a costume." But then yeah. everyone's like, "Oh, but did you?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. the opposite. You know, they're like, "Actually, you know, for, like I have been looking at hotel records, and there was no way in which he could have actually been like, no, I'm serious, guys. I like, you know, it looks. Like, <laughs> if you look at the video, it looks like a guy." It really does, though. Also, like, why would someone be filming that at that time? Right. It's like a completely nondescript (laughs) patch of voice. And then this, and then this, and then this guy in a Yeti suit walks by. Right. uh, (laughs) um, Okay, so it's not a hoax. It was a real thing. Apparently. And so, like, if you look at the letters at the bottom um, of the LRB article, Jordan Sand, who's a historian of Japanese history at Georgetown, writes in with this, like, corrective. And um, I don't know the author, Daniel Soar, this article. He's like, but this is a mystery that can never be solved. (laughs) Because everyone's dead. Yeah, defending. But, like, I don't know. Everyone kind of agrees it wasn't a hoax. It was, I don't know. I don't don't know. Yeah, I think it's just defending the article that he wrote. Okay. But, um, yeah, I don't know if the hoax thing even matters to this whole discussion. Well, Cause yeah, other it's not like it's not it's not like my mom or you, or Tammy's <laughs> parents read that New England Journal of Medicine article right. and then determined they're you know uh, right. they're, they like probably were anti they were anti MSG in Asia right I don't know is that true I have no idea yeah that, actually but I think um, I mean it is you at triggered. least picked it up in Taiwan I guess right you didn't pick it up here um, but yeah it I mean, probably has triggered yeah you're right it has triggered a type of yeah misinformation war. Right, that has gone national um, or international. All right, uh, there's another thing that we should talk about, which is you know Ralph Nader's. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. Is, I'm gonna read from the piece. Then Ralph Nader took up the charge, lobbying Congress and the Food and Drug Administration to ban MSG, particularly from baby food. Do you remember this? I do not. No, okay. but this was this before this is we were born. Before we were born, probably. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, he is old. Is he dead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he I don't is. think so. 
No, I, I thought he had the passed. F- oh gosh. The FDA. That's resisted. like the second person who tried to kill him this show. <laughs> and uh, monoglutamine, yeah, exactly. MSG remained on the safe list, but campaigners argued that this only proved it was in hock to the MSG industry, to right. big MSG. <laughs> big MSG. <laughs> People started avoiding Chinese restaurants and food manufacturers, restored it from their products. Or, or removed it from his project for uh, Anajimoto company. It was financially devastating. Revenue from Western countries plummeted. And even in Japan, MSG consumption fell by a quarter. Double-blind trials showing that Chinese restaurant syndrome had no medical basis, that sufferers experienced the same headaches and palpitations, whether they had been given MSG or a placido, placebo, did nothing to alter the general belief that Chinese food was bad for you. In the 1990s, I got a headache... Uh, I got headaches too. Viral hysteria had taken hold, and MSG's reputation still hasn't fully recovered. Okay, so Ralph, that's Ralph Nader's role in it. I don't know. I have, I have a like the question that I have about it is that like, I don't know. Do you how much of this like do you think is? Uh, I don't know. It's like it's it's interesting because like you're basically saying that this stuff is bad and it's dirty and it's like some sort of like mm-hmm. chemically engineered thing, right? Like how much yeah. of it do you think is just playing on sort of you know anti Asian tropes here? And well, conversely, it also gets rebranded as umami. I was going to say, yeah. Right. And umami is like the all the rage, you right, know. Because it's Japanese. By, by, right. right, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, because Japanese. But even in general, but also like the stink of being Chinese, I think, is dim- diminishing compared to the 60s. In the 60s, you could think of like anything, like Chinese food is obviously gross and right, who knows what right. they eat. There's a little bit of that now yeah. like with wet, wet market stuff. But um, yeah, what are you yeah MSG is <laughs> Japanese, but everyone thinks of it as Chinese. It's so interesting. Right. But when people talk about and fetishize umami today, they're mostly talking. I guess they're talking about naturally occurring umamis. <coughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no. I guess they're talking. What else are they talking? They're talking. Yeah, about they're talking like, about like the, the article stuff. touches on this though. They've rebranded it as umami, but mm-hmm. in doing so, they didn't solve the problem of selling MSG the specific totally. product. Yeah. Um, I did actually accidentally buy it once. Um. I was trying to get like dashi and all this yeah. grocery store I had was like a little red jar, a little glass yeah. jar of MSG oh, yeah. with a red cap. That is like the original product right? called MSG. I didn't know that. And then did you eat it? Yeah, I used it up really quick. I, I guess I'm fine, you know, but yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I survived. It's fine. I don't even think about it anymore, except unless I'm with my mom. She's like, don't eat MSG. And I'm like, like I well, and I think every I country or culture has one, right? Like, it reminds me of like sazon or adobo, right? Like in like Latin mag- cooking, right? And my grandma also, was sorry. Yeah. My grandma was obsessed with Magi, Maggie. Oh M-A-G-T-I, yeah, totally. Which is a Swiss company, but became the global MSG. Exactly. Company. Yeah. I think she must have gotten to Hong Kong when she was young. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, and like sometimes that Ajinomoto like MSG thing to me looks like furakake, which I put on everything. Right. Yeah. So, which like right. probably, I mean, some I think furakake probably has MSG and some doesn't. I'm sure it all has everything. Uh, <laughs> I guess the other question is though is um, my friend Jenny, who's on the podcast before, claims like we should not use the word umami. We Why? should just use the word savory. Because precisely because it, precisely, but precisely because it is this, this universal thing, is it a weird sort of um, exoticization oh. of what is basically in blue cheese, you know, right? Parmesan. Or steak, right. yeah. Like if Mushroom. the English language has the word savory already, are we being maybe not like imperialist, but like douchey mm. if we use the word MSG <laughs> instead of instead of 
Is it savory. different from savory? Does savory do what we want umami to do? I think it's do? different, isn't it? It feels a little different, but I don't know if that's just because I've used it so much. Hmm. Yeah, I also don't know if I had never heard of it, if, if I could even identify umami. I'm not even sure it exists. I just kind of believe it exists. It's like a, it's like the blue cheese mushroom thing. combination flavor, right? Right. Totally. But do you guys believe it exists or do you just kind of assume? I don't know. I never know. I don't really think about food very much in that sort of way. You know? <laughs> I think about it all the time. I don't know. I I mean, I think actually savory does a lot of the work. I don't, because I can't say exactly what it's not doing in that context. What, savory? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it works. I I don't know. Savory seems to also indicate uh, like a fullness of meal, not just a fullness of. Right. That's called kokumi. That's the new new flavor they invented. Oh, really? It's also Japanese. Yeah, Yeah, kokumi. Full flavor. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's part of like weird fetishization in this weird way where like all the cool food in America now is Asian food. Yeah. You know, you know, and it's right. like, uh, I don't know what I make of that. Um, I guess it's nice that I can get Asian food in a lot of places that aren't like Asian enclaves, but um, I don't know. It's just to kind of like become like things like umami, which have been like, uh, they're like gesturing towards Asia, but are not Asian. I think Japanese food is still the only Asian food, like really in like South, Southeast or East Asia that has a kind of like elegant, that is treated with like elegance and respect in the same way that like fine Western traditions are. Right. Even though other ones are coming in, I really feel that that is still true. Like you can go to fancy things of every type, right? You can now. You can go to like slanted door. I don't know if it exists anymore, but that was like the fancy Mm. Vietnamese place here in San Francisco, right? Um, or you they exist, go... but don't you think like for most people they still? No, I agree. Really I agree. Right, right. right. But it's most most people eat Vietnamese food associate with like a pho place, you know? Right. Like yeah. Get like a giant bowl of pho for eight ninety nine or something like that, right? But Japanese Sounds food is, is like, it's like a marker of like this is an advanced society, right? right? Exactly. And no other Asian food does that, I don't think. Um, I don't know. Maybe if they do it, if there's great scarcity, like Burmese food or something like that. But um, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like Sichuan peppercorn might be the new umami. I think it's uh, numbing, you know? Yeah, but I think that's, that's, do you think that's new. I feel like it's been around for a while. You know, it's been around, but I think it's, I think I've seen it on like fusion. Um, people like, like put, oh, really? putting into like oh, fusion really? food. Like or just like one Sichuan. Sichuan avocado <laughs> toast. Or like, um, uh, what is it, ceviche? Like Sichuan peppercorn and ceviche or something right, like that. Sure. Really? Yeah. That sounds good, yeah. but huh. I don't know. Right. That, maybe that's the next umami. Any other thoughts on MSG? Um, if readers have any anecdotes of getting Chinese restaurants, yeah, <laughs> please let us know. <laughs> Diagnose it right. I here. think it. I think it exists, <laughs> and that's also like my. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my is complete... Andy an internalized racist? I think or... <laughs> we're all allowed one very conservative belief in an otherwise progressive worldview, and that's mine. Yeah, okay. I feel like you're. I think it's, I'm gonna. I'm going to swing the hammer and say you're internally racist, but you know, it's okay. You know, we, We're all we, allowed to be. Yeah. We perform many contradictions, and you know, the type of people who say we have to be fully liberated from all types of internal racism and, and, and questions about self, you know, it's okay. You know, enjoy your perfect life. The rest of us are out here being like, I don't know, maybe they are right about it. Maybe Chinese restaurants are bad for me. <laughs> okay, new topic, labor. Tammy Kim, 
What's happening? Um, <laughs> this is this is this is actually very interesting. It's something that I thought was going to happen, and then you know, it's like one of those things where you're like, okay, the math says, and this chart says yeah. that this should happen, right? At some point, um, <clears throat> the economy is going to be saying we need workers. We're back, right? And that people are not going to be going to work, right? For mm-hmm. whatever reason, and that um, workers are going to basically be like, oh, whoa, you know. Like they can't mm-hmm. just replace us right now, and we have a little bit of leverage. Do you think this is true? This is based off a New York Times piece that came out. Uh, let's see, like a few days ago, right? Um, and um, we can link to it in the show notes. But you know, the general—that's I think that's a general idea. It says that nearly 4.3 million workers voluntarily quit their jobs in August. The Labor Department said on Tuesday. That was up from 4 million in July and is by far the most in the two decades the government has been keeping track. Right now, this also sort of coincides with strikes at um, Kellogg's, right, and at John Deere, right, um, and these sort of big companies that are having these very public strikes. Um, and, you know, that is certainly something that, you know, does not, having two big companies doing that at once, I don't know how big, how many employees John Deere actually has, but two very famous companies doing it at once. Um, it's certainly something. So what do you think is happening, Tammy Kim? Uh, time to say goodbye as labor reporter. <laughs> so the DOL report, the Department of Labor report this week is freaking people out. And, you know, and so it's in addition to these numbers of people just voluntarily quitting, there are really interesting stats in particular sectors. So almost a million people in hospitality quit. So restaurants, mm. bars, hotels. Um Three quarters of a million people quit in healthcare. So th- this is pretty remarkable. And I think for I think people, as as you were saying, Jay, are surprised that it's now. Because I think there were all sorts of grim feelings about, okay, unemployment at the state and federal level is starting to wind down. You know, the pandemic moratoriums on housing evictions, et cetera, are winding down. Like this is gonna be a disaster. And that disaster is probably still coming. And yet we have this moment right now where workers are getting uppity, basically, and are like, we don't have to do this and we can find another job. And so there is an advantage that's been building basically over the last year that is now suddenly hitting in these numbers, which are always delayed a bit. Why is this happening? Yeah. Like, Like, where are they going? Why are these people quitting their jobs? Yeah. I mean, so I think this has to do somewhat with this kind of employment benefits unemployment benefits conversation where workers are facing the stakes of the pandemic and are thinking like, do I really have to do this? Is this a job I want to be in? Can I use some of this unemployment, you know, safety net to rethink my life? Right. Um, And also just, they have leverage in certain sectors like that, that those hospitality numbers to me are like, not that surprising in the sense that this is people basically being like, I see all the vacancy postings. And I know that if my boss is dicking me around, I can go elsewhere. Right. You know, Right. So I don't, but I, but I think like something has happened where there was like a build and then these numbers have kind of hit and I don't know what the delay is in the DOL accounts, but you know, I think it's pretty remarkable. I mean, isn't the basic story just like also zooming out is that with the pandemic, there was just sort of like this one discrete moment of synchronized, if not unemployment, but like suspension of employment. And it was never going to be realistic that everyone would in a synchronized fashion re- get reemployed, like like search for jobs all at the same time again. Like there was going to be a lag or it's going to be sort of uneven across the board. Like you can't just build a, a capitalist society overnight, right? Like this stuff has to, people have to like find their ways into uh, 
into jobs or whatever, like on at their own pace. Um, so I like except that most. Of, I mean, but it seems like at least half of those numbers are represented in, in sectors where people couldn't quit. It was the people in healthcare oh. and hospitality who always stayed in their jobs. I mean, some of the hospitality jobs did go away, but like right. most of those were like service jobs where people were continuing to work. It's interesting, mm. you know. Yeah. But yeah, the other half may be that. The other, the other kind of anecdote is that the only the place where I see this the most is my um, kids' childcare, where they are mm-hmm. having a hard time hiring. And at the Times ran this article a few weeks ago, something like using some like economist language to say like childcare is one of those sectors where it's in this gray zone between it's too expensive for most people, like it is too expensive for like yeah. basically everyone, but at the same time it's not nearly remunerative, profitable totally. enough to actually pay workers to stay so it's in this pinch where my my kids childcare, for instance is very um understaffed and it seems like this is like systemic i mean the economists are like has some f- fancy language for it but like the obvious answer is like gov- u.s government should subsidize child care like every other country you know yeah. uh, but that's that's kind of like the, the issue they're in <laughs> um on that note i'm gonna pick her up actually i could be back within 10 minutes i think okay okay andy lewis departing the chat and it's just me and Tammy now um Tammy like I the other question I have about all this and you know is where are these people going you know let's say that you work at a restaurant or let's say that you work at in the kitchen of a hotel something like this right and that you have found your always thought that your labor conditions were bad and that um you weren't getting paid enough that you know you weren't given proper breaks that you know that 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 um you know, maybe you're getting shortchanged by your bosses and that you've said, OK, I'm out. Right. Where, where are these people going? Yeah. Like where, where, are they are they doing other jobs within the same sector? It doesn't seem like that because it seems like there's some drain on the sector overall. Because mm-hmm. if you're just shuffling people around in the same field then you know, it's just going to be that some places are winners and some places are losers. Right. Um, yeah. So w- what's happening? Where are people going? Yeah. So there's also data on from the DOL on switching switch rates. So if people are leaving the sector that's marked out by ideal categories. And so in hospitality and healthcare, the switch rates during the pandemic have been pretty high. So people are trying out new things. I mean, I I just know anecdotally some of and I see this in other reporting, too, like people I've talked to in these sectors will say like, oh, I'm retraining to do X, Y and Z. right? Right. So they might go into try to be a coder or do office management or something less stressful. So some people have made a decision that they don't want to be the quote unquote pandemic heroes. Right. So we've already kind of been through that narrative of that's obviously bullshit and there's really no reward for that. So why do it? And then I think like my brother's in the restaurant industry and he has been moving around in his job. Um, into other restaurants. And I think he's seeing that a lot of other people are doing that too, because they have, for the first time, this kind of leverage, basically. So I think it might also have to do with the mismatch between what employers expected their business to be and the return. So I don't know how it is in Berkeley, but like you go around New York City and it seems even more energetic somehow than before the pandemic. Like the restaurants are so crowded. There's so much oh, demand. No, Everybody's out. No, yeah. You guys no, are different. No, no, no. <laughs> so like the dining sheds and stuff, yeah. like you can't get a seat, everything. Oh, right. Really? And so I, I, it's inside here still. Or, oh, I see. Right. Well, a lot of these are outdoor, but people are okay. eating both indoor and outdoor crowded. And I wonder if there also wasn't employers didn't necessarily expect that. Oh, so you think that maybe it is a, a surge in demand too. I, think, um, I I would think it has to do with that as well. 
one of the things that I have to, you know, like when these types of reports always come out, I'm like, well, how does this happen, right? Like, does it just happen from basically a lot of people having a similar situation, right? Or is there some sort of general thing in the air that people are aware of? Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, one of the things that, and like, I'll give you a very, very, very concrete example, right? So um, I was driving in Port Townsend, Washington. You know where that is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Port Townsend, if, for people who don't know, was uh, supposed to be Seattle, but it wasn't because the Olympic Peninsula ended up being very difficult to get to, I believe. And so then they put Seattle in Seattle, but Port Townsend, it's this very charming sort of place in the Olympic Peninsula. You have to take a ferry to get there generally. And, um, you know, it has all these old Victorian houses, but it's, it's like, you know, it's like a rundown Olympic Peninsula town in some ways. And then it's also a wealthy place in some ways too. Right. I think that's the right way to put it. Um, and they had like a sign outside of their McDonald's where it was like X, you know, like $16 an hour. And then yeah. you look and they clearly had just keep kept putting numbers up that were higher, you know, in the, <laughs> second, in the second category. So I, I don't know where it too. started. But like, I was like, man, you know, at some point they're going to have to buy a two, you know, and put it, <laughs> put it in front of the one. Um, and so then you get a sense that way, right? And I like, yeah. it's like, so how do, how do people sort of, you know, um, is it just individuals sort of uh, responding to economic? Uh, or economic conditions or is there like a way and if you study labor movements if you study this sort of thing like is there are there these moments where everybody just kind of collectively goes holy crap you know this is a new world we're in and like I'm going to think differently about my job yeah yeah I think that's a really good question that I have a completely (laughs) inadequate answer to but my answer is basically I think there is some sort of group momentum and I think it's filtered through different sorts of collectivities like first of all even in places that are not union there is there are forms of like labor organization where through your networks of churches or whatever you are hearing about what's available right and so there could be information fed that way there's also like recruitment channels and job placement agency channels that where the wages will start going up and people will have feelings and advise one another about what to take or not to take i mean one thing that's kind of interesting right now is like the last strike wave where people got really politicized was probably like red for ed 2018 right right, say? right for sure where we yes. had the waves of teacher strikes and those were and that was much bigger people. than that was much bigger than that and those were right? bigger i mean i ought to see right now if they were to go on strike they're right now consider the members are voting on their tentative agreement that mm-hmm. would What's be I huge because i ought see is the technical workers in film right, production right. 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 And so if they went on strike, that would be between 40 and 60,000 workers. So that would be significant. And Kaiser Permanente right now in California, if they don't agree, that could be 30,000, I believe. So that would be okay. huge. And what's kind of interesting about what's happening now is it's all private sector. And, you know, I think like seeing that in these sorts of jobs um, is really to me that that probably scans differently than the public sector jobs for people One because it's mostly where people work. People are mostly employed in the private sector and the public sector is where unionization is more um, common. But here we have private sector jobs where, you know, a very, very small fraction, I think it's 4% right now of private sector workers are unionized. And yet we have these like really high profile strikes that are happening or pending. Um, Uh That has to have an effect, I think, on younger workers to be seeing that and to be thinking about their leverage too. So it seems like there's this kind of cycle of, militarism basically that's cropping up that's an interesting distinction that you make right because like the teacher strikes that was a lot of it based on 
people going in, like some of them were organizers who had become teachers, right? So mm-hmm. there was a lot of that. For sure. You know, there's a lot of criticism about that, especially, I think there's a guy in Arizona and everyone's like, you're just a union organizer. You've only been a teacher for <laughs> two months, you know? Like you're not He's a real teacher. like getting a PhD. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but there was, but you know, that was about a solidarity between that profession in different states. So like I, I actually did some reporting on that, you know, and so you have, mm-hmm. it It Same. was a wave, right? It starts in uh, West Virginia, I believe, right? right? And then it moves to Oklahoma. It, like mm-hmm. some of these, some states that are very unusual, right? So Oklahoma yeah. and then Arizona is where it really, really sort of blows up, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that makes sense to me because teachers, first of all, they share an identity as teachers, right? Like we are teachers. They're also all, like you said, they're, you know, they're paid by the state or they're paid by local municipalities. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's a general sense that teachers are underpaid, right? Like that's totally. what you're told, like since you're a kid and many of them in, during this period of time were sharing stories in which like they, you know, anyone who listens to them is just like, what is happening? Like, right, in, in, in like people, I think the teachers in Oklahoma hadn't had a raise in 10 years, you know? And then like on top of that, they were supposed to buy their own school supplies for like their classroom, like classroom supplies and stuff like that. And then you hear that you're in Arizona, you're like, hey, it's the same thing. So that makes sense. Right. But here we have uh, John Deere. Right. We have Kaiser Permanente. We have Hollywood workers. And then we have um, Kellogg and Nabisco. Right. And these in a lot of they're all the only thing they have in common is that these are big institutions, but there's nothing like, you know like they're not the same type of workers so like uh, like what do you think is happening like is it is it some other sort of externality that is that's affecting all of this yeah so most of in most of these fights their contracts are up so these are like contract related strikes but that's a coincidence because contracts are expiring all the time so right right, what's in the air around this yeah i mean i think so with the teacher strikes like in addition to the wage issues there were there was like like in a in what was prototyped by the chicago teachers union in 2012 like this idea of bargaining for the common common good or when basically that means like when public sector workers are bargaining for what's happening in their communities and so teachers were telling a story about yes it's about our wages but it's also about us caring for your kids and not having like counselors and librarians and all of the facilities we need for our community to thrive so they were making a very effective sell to the community i mean these for private sector strikes that's very very hard to do because it's like you could look at John Deere as a factory worker at a poultry right. plant and be like, these people are making three times what I make. Like, why do I need right, to care right, about right, them? Right. right. And they don't necessarily affect me. They're not part of my community. And yet we see like a lot of people supporting these strikes. And I think that's because of where we are right now with, and this relates to the DLO reports of we're all frustrated. Like, even if we ourselves are not low wage workers or have, are fighting COVID in our lives, like we're seeing and absorbing all of these impacts. And so I think it leads to a situation where there is a sort of ripeness because when the workers are making a calculation of like, could we go on strike and have community support? Because you need right. community support even if you're a private sector worker. Right now, the answer is yes to everybody. Are the John Deere ones in the manufacturing centers? Like, who are the people who are mm-hmm. like, wh- yeah. where? It's, it's manufacturing. Yeah, so there's a number of plants that are scattered around the Midwest, and these are manufacturing right. workers. There's about 10,000 of them right now. That so are that was my next question, right? These are not happy. Like this is not like uh, you know. This is not. I mean, outside of the the IATCA or I, IATC, right? <laughs> like these are these are these are not happening in like you know, coastal states, right? This is always yeah. true. Like same thing with teacher strike. Like it's not like the New York City public school teachers went mm-hmm. on strike. There was the LA strike, but that was a year later. Right, right, right. Yeah. And there was like a 
always threats of a Chicago one, right? But um, <laughs> but uh, one, yeah. it didn't materialize. I only know about this because they were supposed to go on strike, and I flew up to Chicago. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> did? <laughs> and then they said, Yeah, my producer <laughs> waited for three days That's sitting in really the hotel. Funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, try to get like the who's the head of the teachers union there she's very famous i'm blanking on her name. oh yeah she passed um, away but um, right right oh gosh, trying to get her to yeah. talk to us and she would always be like in 40 minutes i will be able to talk to you and then seven hours would pass karen you know? lewis karen yeah, lewis yeah and, then, like, yeah. <laughs> and rolla k would like go you know we'd go eat lunch like down in miracle mile or something like that and wait around <laughs> and then finally then finally we flew back but um yeah the uh the the, you know, like this is happening in places that all over the country, um, everywhere. Like, what do you make of that? You know, like that it does seem almost randomly distributed, right? Like, yeah. there's, uh, like I understand that, like, you know, these are the places that always strike, but like, you know, like there, there still seems to be no like actual coherence to it geographically. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any really geographic or sort of like industrial connection. I, I really, I really do think it labor leaders right now and, even rank and file are making a calculation that it is a it is a, an advantageous environment right now for workers to get support to win victories that there's enough public pressure and just like industry sort of labor market pressure for their them to be able to get concessions i don't think that's probably as true in like journalism <laughs> no. but you know but i think like in a lot of these places they're seeing that you know i mean even for john deere like how many people are buying like expensive lawn mowers and like lawn equipment over the past year or two years, including Jay Kang, like a hell of a lot of people, you know? And so I did not I buy expensive. The John, consumer like, demand. I bought, okay. <laughs> to be clear, I bought like a $85 electric lawn mower. Well, that's why it didn't work. <laughs> it definitely didn't work. It didn't work. I have a, oh, I have a push mower too. You know, those things that like, you know. It, those it, definitely don't work. It does not work. I bought it out of a sense of quaintness, you know, and be like, oh, They're well, really you know, I don't, cool don't want to, yeah. like, they look cool and it's kind of like you feel like you're in a Pleasantville type of thing, you know? You're like, How oh, strong do you have to be to make it work? Does it correspond to strength? Because you're pushing down, No, right? no, it does not correspond to strength. So it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work for as anyone. far as I can tell. Yeah, our grass is terrible, though, so it might just be our grass is bad type of thing. But it doesn't work. It just gets stuck, and then you're just like, oh, my yeah. God. And then it makes this horrific noise, you know? It's just like listening to like somebody scratch a fork on a plate the whole time. Oh, you're like, Jesus. this is terrible, you know? So then, yeah, I bought a little electric battery motor, uh, mower, which is in some ways worse because, uh, you know, it, I have to charge it and then I'm like I'm ready and then it doesn't work <laughs> oh my god <laughs> the whole point is like there's no point in having grass we basically you know we solved it by uh, because you know obviously it actually rained last night and it was the first time it had rained in like so long and we yeah, just well. our grass is, we just let our grass die that was our solution oh so are you gonna do a, a non-grass lawn now like no, with rocks or some so. shit okay. no I don't think we're gonna just have a we're gonna just have a patch of dead grass forever I think <laughs> I don't really care about lawns so I like those non-grass Andy's back landscapes. hey Andy Andy's we had a very long conversation his daughter yeah we're what talking about have? my lawn right now all right so that Tammy the next question I have and I think this one you know because I, I think that it's good to pick your brain on these sorts of things and you yeah. alluded it to before right answers but... it's okay it's okay you, you alluded it to to it before but like 
how is labor around the country thinking about this right like is this is this like the moment are they thinking you know like this is it like everyone from like <laughs> the revolution everyone from like nba players association to <laughs> all the you know all the way to like uh hospitality workers all these people like do you think that i i don't think there's gonna be a general strike right but are we gonna just see a ton more right um like you said contracts are always running out right that is the that is the nature of time and so um (laughs) um, is this is this gonna be as they call it striketober or not (laughs) i think labor is feeling very hopeful and maybe that this is an inflection point I know that labor is always saying that, but there are a few different facts that make that potentially true. So one of them is, first of all, the Biden administration has made a ton of promises about labor, right? We've talked about the PRO Act before Mm -hmm. on the show. There are potentially things short of that. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's going to pass anytime very soon, but the DOL is kind of back in action. You know, there are parts of all parts that relate to labor across different agencies that are actually doing things again, including in the DOJ. So that's kind of hopeful just from like an administrative perspective. Labor is popular. They know that young people support unions, right? And this has been a trend that's been happening for like 10, 20 years, but is pretty intensified during the pandemic. Um, They're also in just like, this is very wonky, but the Teamsters are right now having an election that would be very, very big. There's been a Democratic slate called Teamsters United that has been trying to take over the Teamsters now for several election cycles. Um, Hoffa is dead, and this is the first time basically there's going to be a non-Hoffa president of the Teamsters. So this is pretty big and very symbolic because of like the role that the Teamsters plays in the imagination of right, the country right, around right. labor. Also, Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO, has died, and so there's going to be a power realignment there, and people are looking to very progressive young candidates to take that over. So in that sense, like there does seem to be this question of like, are we determining the future of like major union and union confederations? Are we potentially looking to like very insurgent activity in some of these places where there hasn't been? Um, And I think like the pandemic, like sharpening, you know, it's so cliche now, but whatever, laying bare or sharpening like the contradictions (laughs) of capitalism. It's so cliche, but I think like some of it is true, you know, and I think we, I think, so that's my sense, but it's a big question mark because labor is so weak compared to its historical strength, right? So anytime we say like, oh, we're so excited, like in 2018, we're so excited, like there's we're bound to have a disappointment around that. And yet these labor numbers from DOL are no joke. Right. Yeah. It's great because, you know, like it seemed like after Bessemer that like a lot of people yeah. were like kind of, you know, amongst our chattering class were like basically just like, let's throw in the towel. This went so poorly. <laughs> and if we can't do this and what can we do? And yet, like, it seems like almost spontaneously that, you know, like workers just sort of were like, okay, you know, now it seems like people are excited about it again. Do you think that we have too much of a monomaniacal force, uh, uh, too much of a monomaniacal focus on, on Amazon? You know, mm. like, did we but there make is too more much Amazon, of Amazon? What? There's more Amazon activity too since Bessemer, right? Did you're you uh, you're no, you're cracking is, up again. Digitizing. You sound like a. I'm gonna mark this. Dead mouse or something. It's okay. We'll just let it run. Um, Tammy, yeah, um, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think so. Bessemer, that that's the hardest puzzle in the entire world to solve. Right. The right. Amazon question. So, you know, that like using that as a barometer is definitely unfair just because nobody knows what the heck to do about Amazon. And it's going to take us a really long time to figure out all of the strikes we're seeing right now are 
strikes in industries that have had generally okay labor density that you know and these are in traditional union situations where you're having a strike attached to a contract like that's like wonderful to celebrate i think it raises the question of like we still haven't figured out any sturdy form of labor negotiation or of workers wielding power outside of a collective bargaining agreement and that's troubling because again the amazon economy doesn't really like that that strategy doesn't answer the question of what to do in the amazon economy right and everything we're excited about is in that traditional framework. Right. Why? Places Why where is that? that was going to already happen, right? Like what we don't kind of, where we, we know how to really do have that. This new ground, you know? right? I mean, yeah. we've built to do that and it's exciting and like CBAs are incredibly durable, incredible devices and yet it seems like we probably need to figure something else out for the millions of workers who won't be covered by CBAs. Right. Oh, right. Andy, you're fine now. You sound like Andy. Do you have any <laughs> questions for Tammy, our labor reporter? <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't mean that sarcastically. Like you actually are our labor reporter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, uh, no. Okay. Uh, I mean, there there is more. I mean, there is more stuff happening with Amazon, right? That's not just yeah, Bessemer, right? For sure. So it's continuing. It's continuing. Workers are trying to experiment. Unions are trying to experiment. You know, the Teamsters has thrown down a ton of money to try to get in there. Yeah. Um, they're not the only union that's been playing this, but you yeah. know. But nevertheless, I think. It's it's the warehouse question, but it's a generally bigger question about like tech and how flexible that form of capitalism is in the world. Yeah, yeah. And how yeah. hard it is to get any kind of density with organizing. Yeah, so, yeah I will say that yeah. my experience at my university, uh, I joined the American Association of University Professors. So like you're, you know, you're doing it you're again. You're roboting again. You're roboting. I don't know. Okay, Andy said, I will say back. my, I'll do my Andy impression. <laughs> I will say that my experience at my university, do you want to type in, I'll just speak as you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, what is an Andy tech, you know? Um, I don't know, what is it? Okay, I'm going to do it. Andy's typing right now. I'm going to speak as Andy. Right, I'm putting in my Andy. Let me, let me, let me occupy the character, as they say. Where'd you type it? Oh. Oh, he said. Oh, he typed. My name is Jay, and I'm yes. Okay, I'm an idiot. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the Ron Burgundy trick. <laughs> it worked. I did read it online. Uh, yeah. I did read it on there. Um, Andy, you're still. You're still. Uh, yeah. Okay. I was just whatever. Okay. Let me just reload. I'll plug and unplug or something. We can. We can figure yeah, it maybe out. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, because we need you for the last section, right? I do have one more question for you, Tammy, while Andy figures that out, right? Um, do you like you have said that okay there's this kind of these places are places that where the workers already have collective bargaining agreements right where um, there is not you don't have to convince them to do this right it's just you have to convince them to go on strike right Um, that's about it but like how how do you see this stuff playing out in in other fields like like Amazon right yeah. Is there a, is there going to be something in the air, as they say, right, that will convert people, or is that is that sort of a pipe dream? Yeah. No, I think definitely strike activity because it's so hard to get workers to go on strike because it takes so much work because they're so spectacular in their nature. They do inspire workers to f- try to figure out forms of organization because obviously it's not that far of a cry for an Amazon worker in a warehouse to look at any of number of these workplaces and be like, oh yeah, I identify with that, of not having breaks, of not getting right. paid appropriately, et cetera, et cetera. But the form of, like trying to find the, figure out the form of that is very tricky. Um, 
we've talked before on the show about Amazonians United, which is now a public campaign that's trying to organize in a non-traditional setting within Amazon warehouses. So they don't even have a goal of getting official unions necessarily. Like at this point, they're just trying to figure out what does it even mean to have a work organization at a specific warehouse? Um, So, you know, I don't, I don't believe that CBAs will really work in all workplaces. I just don't. And so I think, but to the extent that CBA related activity can be a catalyst for people to talk to their coworkers to try to figure out like, hey, maybe we could even just have meetings after work and like send a letter to the boss that we need water. You know, just very simple things. Like I think that's really, really important. And there's a loop that's created that way. Got it. Um, Andy, are you back? How do I sound? No, now he's completely muted. Okay. Oh. Um, you know, the last thing I wanted to talk Wait, about today. Can you hear was, me now? Uh, you know, and we can. I guess Andy already went and he left, so it, we don't. We're not in that much of a. Is a uh, okay. I want to talk about Joe about Mansion, right? Um, what are, what are we doing <laughs> here? We're all staring Andy at back. each other on Zoom. Andy, are you back? Can you hear me now? Yes, yeah. Andy's back. Okay. Sorry, Andy. Why are we talking about Mansion? Uh, just cause, I don't know. It's, I think it's like the most, un, I don't know. Am I exaggerating when I say that this is one of the most important, like individual votes that I can recall, you know, and what's the vote? Tell us what the vote is. So the Biden infrastructure bill, there's two, right? There's the hard and the human infrastructure bill right. that are coming up and we can get into the details about the negotiation, but basically they need all 50 senators to approve the human infrastructure bill. Um, like, which includes like social services as well as climate uh, policies, and Mansion and Christine Sinema, Sinema uh, in Arizona are like the two holdouts, and Mansion in particular is the one who is trying to basically gut all the climate right. stuff in the in the second bill. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're in this like the, you, there's a structural problem, which is like you need you need every single vote, which gives incredible leverage yeah. to one single senator to fuck everything up. But then there's also the like I don't know the gossipy part of like who the fuck is Joe Manchin and why is he, why is this one individual, you know, not only messing up like you could talk about the U.S. economy, the global you know climate problem, global warming, yeah. global economy, like basically, and I feel like you know we haven't talked much about the Biden bill in this show because nothing had been settled, but mm-hmm. I've I've been you know just kind of I feel like it's like this subplot over the last few months where we're all just kind of like waiting for it to get done before we exhale but it would it would like it really represents like years and years of what progressives um have been talking about and if if even the 3.5 trillion dollar one which is doesn't seem like it'll pass now if if that got passed that would basically be what bernie had been talking about for the last five or six years and it's interesting because it also seems like it has grave electoral issues too right like you yeah, know, like you have Biden, who is becoming less and less popular and also, you know, almost an invisible president at this point in some sort of ways. Right. Like, like, think about it. How much more do you hear about Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema? Right. than you hear about Joe Biden, for example. Right. Yeah. How much more do you hear about AOC and and, uh, you know, like uh, like Jayapal or 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 um, Ilhan Omar? Yeah. Than or Cory Bush, than you hear about Joe Biden, right? Like there's like there's almost no conversation about Joe Biden. In some ways, he feels him and Kamala both feel invisible in a way. Now it might be that it's because we had the most 
attention grabbing president of maybe you know all time <laughs> right uh in office but i don't know i find it interesting because I, I i think about this stuff and i'm just like well okay what happens if this is this is the story forever right um and nothing can get past and then he right. becomes seems less and less and less uh you know powerful and that the effects of these sorts of bills which could help help voters right it could help people come out and be like these were good ideas like if nothing happens then it's just like well what do we waste all that time for you know yeah um like it seems like it has grave implications down the line um and uh i don't know i was wondering what you thought about that it's just like you know like what what's actually at stake here and you've been you've been you've been asking to do this story for three weeks so i'm gonna you're now our, you're now our, <laughs> well you're now I our just, infrastructure reporter yeah i'm obsessed with infrastructure but um, <laughs> is it is it is it the case that i remember after afghanistan biden's numbers plummeted for the first time have they recovered or, or is he still kind of in the negative because i kind of felt like that was temporary because again the american public largely supported leaving afghanistan right um but yeah i mean yeah, you know, there's so much speculation about the psychology of cinema and mansion. Like, mm-hmm. it is kind of political suicide for both of them to be doing this. Um, is so, it for like, mansion though? Because obviously he has big he has ties to coal, fuel. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, but like, like in the I, long run, yes. But all the all the polling suggests they all want this. You know, he's he's I, like so obvious. Like the, the headline is that mansion's family has like a coal i don't know like interest group thing that p- yeah. profits from fossil fuels and he and made half donor a base, last year right? yeah and he, he receives the most donors from energy of all the of all the politicians but it's like yeah but and maybe he just is like setting himself up for a cushy private uh career in the future but like voters everywhere want this bill right um and west virginia i don't i don't know how they would vote how they like with their long-term voting record is yeah. but they voted for bernie over hillary in 2016 which might be like a totally different issue but that does suggest to me it's not like it's they're like it's true yeah completely immune like the, de- the democratic voters are immune to like progressive policies mm-hmm. um, and there's just not that many coal workers in the country you know it's, it's a very yeah. small population at this point well you never know that reading the news you know it's yeah. Like <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's... everyone's either a coal everyone either works at amazon or they're a coal miner or it's they're, a taxi, they're a taxi driver driving you know yeah People what do you think about that? There are three they, jobs. They, they work in a diner. There's four. There's four. There's jobs. four jobs. What did you think of that New York Times article that said like Mansion votes against climate change while climate change is hurting West Virginia? It was almost like too obvious what they were doing. You know what, what I'm saying? Doing? I can't comment on anything. I don't know if I like saw that piece. Yeah. Okay. Tammy what what struck you about that? I mean, it was it's true. You know, like yeah, climate change is hurting every state oh, you think it was like a false concept it was like a it was no like it was just like how is this how is this news right, right. you know it's like a, oh. it was like an onion it was like an onion headline almost. It, was like, <laughs> it was like this isn't news this is like a stated fact i don't know yeah i didn't read but it, uh but, yeah uh, but yeah but, you're obviously trying to push the obvious argument that right. uh solving climate change is better for best for everyone this right. isn't partisan and all that blah, blah, yeah. blah. so biden's uh biden his popularity dropped in late august and it has it's about the same now like where more people disapprove than yeah. approve so 49.5 oh, percent right. disapprove and 44.8 percent approve what he's doing i don't yeah. know what do you think about this trump coming back and winning the election thing are you worried about that i also read that pompeo might be trying to run also which is kind of crazy pompeo? but like like the secretary of state for what's trump what's he gonna do i don't know 
The only thing um, I know is that it's not going to be Nikki Haley or like you know or uh, or Rubio. Be, I mean, it might be like yeah. DeSantis, <laughs> but it's not going to be one of these sort of like you know. Uh, Around DeSantis from Florida, <laughs> right? It's not going to be so random. These, it's not going to be one of these like groomed GOP machine think tank people, you know, mm. like the ones that they want who are going to come in and say the right things about race and you know, not the right things but you know they're not going to like just stand around and be like we need to eliminate critical race theory in our like they're going to try and be a little bit more like i want to reach across the aisle and work with people on you know like right. none of those people are going to win i know that much but um i don't know it seems like it's going to be trump right <laughs> are we uh do we want it to be trump do we feel like trump will not win it's interesting uh, yeah. i don't know i think he i don't think win. he would win i think i'd be more afraid like okay it's one of those things you know like it's like the old what are you afraid of? What are the most afraid of? Right. So that's a good question. We'll end it on. We'll end the show on this. Like who? Okay. I'm going to give you a bunch of hypotheticals. Right. Oh you tell gosh. me who you're afraid, more afraid of. Mike uh, of running who might. And this is the idea that they might potentially win. Right. The first mm-hmm. is. Okay. Ready? Rand Paul or Donald Trump? I don't think Rand Paul could win. Right. Okay. Right. So yeah. Donald Trump. Right. That yeah. was so, yeah. More, I hope, I was like, so I hope it's Rand Paul. Yeah. That was a good one. Josh Hawley or Donald Trump? Where, where's Hawley been? I haven't seen him in a while. Exactly. In the news. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, Matt Gates is canceled, so it can't be Matt Gates. But, like, right. you know, like this, I guess the only point of my. Josh like, Hawley is quite scary. Is he the one who went to Stanford? But he may not have enough like, name recognition. Ooh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Tucker Carlson. Or Donald Trump. No, I'm serious. You know, I think Tucker would win. (laughs) Yeah, I think that like so like the list of people who are scary, who are like more of a threat to win than Trump is pretty low, right? Like Nikki Haley, like come on, you know Tim Scott, right? Like Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some talk around that. Like you know, I don't, I don't see any of these things happening. Do you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah, we're we're maybe in some trouble. Okay, is there anything else you want to talk about? This is a bit of a scattered show. I I mean, I was curious if you guys had thoughts on cinema because she, I mean, Mansion seems more explainable than her, right? Everyone's sort of like, what is going on with her? The other thing I would say is um, not about cinema in particular, but, uh, you know, when I talked to Jake a few weeks ago about what he had, like, he had apparently been in DC talking Mm -hmm. to people. He said, he thinks, and I think it's probably obvious that a lot of silent majority centrist Democrats Mm -hmm. are also opposed to the bill but they're just kind of letting mansion and cinema take the bullet gotcha um really maybe like yeah like it 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 is kind of crazy that would just be just two you know right that's true and and they're like holding over they're like holding up human progress why would those two basically take the bullet for everybody i don't know i mean the speculation is like cinema i mean would be like they have private careers waiting for them you know with all the companies that are donating to their campaigns got it politically for cinema she doesn't have that much to lose because the other people in arizona are honestly so crazy yeah that she looks good <laughs> like people will right. vote for her over any republican if they have any sort of democratic tendencies because the republican cast there is so off the wall well yeah arizona was one of those states that recently flipped so we'll see how it's been changing but yeah you know right the right. roster right now is pretty Sure. The other the other thing I was thinking was uh, last week the Times ran those like headline articles about inflation. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I feel like one thing that's going to come up probably in the next few months is this specter that spending like so like when Larry Summers yeah, said 
uh, we should cut down the stimulus bill. He was left out of the room back, like, I think last fall or whatever. And everyone's like, we're over austerity politics. We now believe in government spending. And now it seems like the mainstream consensus is now swinging back towards this fear of inflation and the need to, like... Stagflation, right? Yeah. Fear of stagflation, which was from the 70s. And we're kind of going back towards this, like, neoliberal consensus that government spending is bad. And I think this was the question during the middle of COVID, right? Like, is this permanent? Have we like seen a permanent paradigm shift away from neoliberal right. austerity politics, or is it just temporary? Um, when while well, we think the pandemic is this life-threatening situation, yeah. and um, I'm a little worried that they're preparing. They mean I don't know, economists, the, the Times, or whatever. They're preparing the ground for that argument because that's Manchin's big argument, which I know is probably disingenuous. But he's saying like we can't spend more. Right. The government's overheated, supply chain, supply chain, you know? Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so I don't know, that's just like an intellectual thing that I'm kind of curious about. Like, yeah. What is the what is the temperature of like the economic consensus? Because um, it was like really radical in the middle of the mm-hmm. pandemic. That's that suddenly everyone that was like a Keynesian. Now, I keep hearing what? that. The what? temperature of X. It was like all over oh, uh, Succession last night. They kept saying, what's the temperature? Don't uh, spoil it. I'm not spoiling I'm not... it. I'm just saying they say the word temperature a lot. Is that a spoiler? I don't know. It just, it just kind of came to me. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I'm here. glad that you brought that up because I think that's really, is false flag the word? I don't know. I think it's really like a fake thing that people yeah. are planting right now because if you actually look at the numbers, yes, like so there's been a rise in commodity prices. Like I think it was like meat and eggs or something when that report came out around inflation. And uh-huh. it is true that like if you're a struggling person who's making minimum wages and trying to feed your family, like food is very expensive right now and it's hard. But yeah. to even invoke the word stagflation right now is so incredibly silly and stupid because the numbers yeah. are not even close to anything that approximates like what we saw in the yeah. 70s. Right. And so to my mind, like there is a, a fake consensus that's trying to be built to make people worry right. to change right. this right. But we need to really bat that down. The other, sorry, this is like kind of wonky. The other thing is like, there's like, there's kind of like two arguments about inflation, right? One is like, it's literally just the cost of goods are too high. And I think that makes a lot of sense and that you can draw, draw a direct line from like stagnant production and supply chains and all the ships that are, you know, off California. <clears throat> and that's why stuff costs a lot. And that can be fixed. And labor prices. You know? Right. Well, but the other theory is just there's too much money in the economy. It's just fl- that's a money well, supply theory. Yeah. And that is like the, what the neoliberals used for years to mm-hmm. argue for austerity. Right. And if you believe this, the, the cost push argument that it's about supply chains, like literally stuff you can see costs too much, that is something that can be fixed with, you know, better infrastructure, better. Oh, oh no. Andy, we've lost you again. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, that fits with infrastructure, being making infrastructure better. Is what you're saying? Yeah, it's not. It's not neoliberal monetarism. Like monetarism is the argument for austerity. Sorry. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> this episode has been a technical disaster. <laughs> I apologize. All right. Should we end it? We we uh we. Yeah. Welcome new listeners now. to the chaos of the show. Oh my God. <laughs> um, thank you for listening to our show if you'd like to support us we said this before you can go to goodbye.substack.com or you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ttsgpod if you'd like to reach us on twitter we're at ttsgpod and you can DM us um, you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com 
How do most people get in touch with us? I guess most people are in our Discord at this point, right? And they just contact us in the Discord. Um, we should do listener questions at some point soon. Yeah. Stop doing that. Um, yeah. Uh, is there anything else that we need to plug here? Your book talk on Thursday again. Book so people should join Thursday. as subscribers and come into the Discord. It's going to be a J. King AMA. <laughs> Ask me anything. <laughs> I will answer all questions about everything. But okay. Well, until next time, uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.